Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Middle East Eye reports Turkey blocks start of talks on Sweden and Finland's NATO bids. Sources tell Middle East Eye that Turkey has blocked the negotiations that are due to start today over the two countries' alleged support of the PKK. What are we to make of this and... Will Erdogan stick to his guns? For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His forthcoming book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas, Slavery, and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, Gerald, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So at a NATO ambassadorial level meeting yesterday in Brussels, Turkey voted against commencing the discussion regarding Finland and Sweden's bids to join NATO, citing its objection to the bid. Turkey accuses both countries of adopting a lax attitude towards the Kurdistan Workers Party or the PKK. Turkey, the U.S., and the EU have all designated the PKK as a terrorist organization. Dr. Horn, is this a position that you think Erdogan will stick to, or do you see him using this as leverage to extract his pound of flesh? Most likely the latter. Keep in mind that Erdogan has a well-established record of playing a double game. Mm -hmm. Recall that on the one hand, Turkey has been hosting negotiation sessions between the Ukrainians and the Russians on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, Turkey has been supplying very effective drones uh, to the Ukrainians, drones which you may recall helped to turn the tide of the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia in favor of the former. Indeed, uh, I recommend to your audience a comprehensive article in a recent issue of The New Yorker uh, detailing the effectiveness uh, of this drone warfare. On the one hand, uh, Turkey has been castigated by Washington for receiving Moscow's formidable S-400 anti-aircraft missile uh, operation uh, that has caused many to say that Turkey perhaps even should be expelled from NATO. In fact, if you look at today's Wall Street Journal, the former Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, former vice presidential nominee uh, under Al Gore, uh, has an op-ed suggesting uh, precisely that. And Turkey itself has not forgotten what happened in the summer of 2016 when Washington was credibly accused of sponsoring a military coup against Mr. Erdogan that barely failed. And in fact, the coup plotters uh, had uh, Mr. Erdogan uh, literally in the crosshairs and he barely escaped assassination. But you also need to consider that just this week in Washington, D.C., you had the prime minister of Greece, Greece being the longtime eternal foe of Turkey. Recall that 
Uh, Greece won its most recent independence about 200 years ago in a bitter and brutal war against the Ottoman Turks, uh, represented in the recent book by Columbia University's uh, Mark Mazower. And the prime minister speaking as uh, Kamala Harris was seated behind him, along with Speaker Pelosi, uh, denounced the Turks in no uncertain terms. And so it's unclear how this situation is going to shake out with regard to Turkey seeking to block the ascension to NATO of the Finns and the Swedes. But uh, being a wily negotiator, uh, I dare say that Mr. Erdogan will not walk away from the negotiating table uh, unsatisfied or dissatisfied. And in fact, if you look at the remarks of Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken, he has poo-pooed the idea that the Finns and Swedes will be blocked. But keep in mind, it's not just the Turks who are upset with the ascension of the Finns and Swedes to NATO. Keep in mind that Croatia, uh, which, as you know, has been close historically to Germany. In fact, they can attribute their recent uh, independence to Germany's intervention in the U Yugoslav conflict about 30 years ago. Uh, they are, are, are upset about this ascension because they claim that with regard to the uh, peace agreement that led to the lessening of the siege on Bosnia-Herzegovina, that the strictures of those agreements have not been fulfilled and that they will block uh, the Finns and the Swedes until these strictures uh, are basically observed. So there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip, and so it's unclear whether this uh, recent move of the Finns and the Swedes to uh, reverse uh, decades, and in Swedes' case, centuries of neutrality and non-alignment uh, will prevail. But I would dare say that the North Atlantic bloc has other problems to contemplate. Uh, for example, you might have seen the article in the Financial Times of London that suggested that the head of Volkswagen is very upset uh, with this Russia policy of Chancellor Schultz in uh, Berlin. Uh, and indeed, the neutral observers are suggesting that a boycott of Russian energy will have a devastating impact on the German economy, of Volkswagen not least. And also speaking of the Financial Times, you might have seen the op-ed by Anne-Marie Slaughter, a former uh, State Department official under Obama, a former dean at Princeton, a head of a, the head of a Washington think tank, uh, you do not reach that level without being well-wired within the U.S. ruling elite. And she's raised searching and probing questions about the overall strategy of the North Atlantic bloc with regard uh, to Russia. The same could be said for the Washington Post columnist, Fareed Zakaria, who also, as you know, moonlights on CNN as a host of a program, uh, he had an op-ed in the Washington Post just a few days ago that likewise was raised searching and probing questions, in his case, about these asset seizures uh, of Russian assets uh, in the, to the tune of hundreds of billions. According to Mr. Zakaria, this is raising uh, doubts not only in New Delhi and Beijing about uh, whether Washington will be able to do the same to their assets uh, that might temporarily be housed in the United States of America, but even there are those in Brussels who are raising similar questions. And then uh, we get 
to what I call the big enchilada. Mr. Biden, as we speak, is headed to Northeast Asia because he does not want his allies, particularly uh, South Korea, to lose sight of the fact that China should remain in the crosshairs. And uh, that, it seems to me, is the uh, ultimate story uh, with regard to this entire adventure, escapade in Ukraine. And to that end, I hope that Washington has paid attention to the fact that you had a very important meeting in Moscow just the other day between the uh, CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, headed by Russia, including uh, former members of the Soviet Union, including uh, Belarus and Kazakhstan, a meeting jointly with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that has as a titular head uh, China, that also includes Iran, and is viewed by certain analysts as, as sort of a lineal descendant of the old Warsaw Pact. And I dare say that uh, on the agenda, although I'm not privy to the details of the agenda, was wary and concerned about what Washington's plans are uh, with regard to both Russia and China. And to that end, also pay attention to a meeting that took place in France the other day of the so-called uh, Trade and Technology Council, an attempt to bring the United States and the EU together on a common platform as opposed to squabbling, which is their usual tendency. Um, it's no secret that this Trade and Technology Council is trying to coordinate the hawkish U.S. policy towards Russia and towards China with uh, a policy of France in particular that might not be on all fours uh, with that hawkishness. And at the same time, uh, the EU has to consider the policies of the erstwhile member of the European Union, speaking of, of Brexit London, uh, where you have the Prime Minister Boris Johnson being more hawkish than the hawks in Washington, but at the same time threatening to overthrow the Brexit pact because of difficulties in implementing that pact in Northern Ireland, part of the UK, but for the first time in recent decades, you now have the leader in Northern Ireland being the Sinn Féin party, uh, which is tied loosely, at least, to the Irish Republican Army, which is hostile to the monarchy in London. So the North Atlantic bloc has many fissures and contradictions to contemplate. And sadly enough, I don't necessarily see contemplation of these fissures and contradictions uh, being debated or even contemplated on the in the U.S. left. It just came out today that Italy has proposed a peace plan for Ukraine. It was widely reported that Israel's leader, Mario Draghi, pretty much beseeched President Biden to come up with some kind of a diplomatic solution to Ukraine. It seems that the economic pain is rising to a point where in a parliament you have to be concerned that on any given day your your government could be d dissolved. How long can these governments hold out with the amount of economic pain that their people are, are going to be feeling? Well, that is the $64 question, is it not? And you, if you consult your tapes, you'll find that early on in this conflict, I suggested that Italy would be peeled off uh, First, primarily, not least because of the longstanding ties between uh, Rome and Moscow, stretching back uh, to the histrionic days of Silvio Berlusconi, uh, Mr. Uh, Uga Buga himself, uh, known for his many uh, sex scandals. But that's not the only problem, it seems to me, 
that the North Atlantic bloc faces. Already you see that Washington's trying to ease sanctions against Venezuela because you cannot have a capitalist world with sanctions against the major oil suppliers, speaking of Venezuela, Iran, and Russia. At the same time, you might have noticed uh, that uh, out of pocket uh, in, in Washington this past week were not only uh, Vice President Harris, but Secretary of State Lincoln, uh, Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin. They were all at the same site at the United Arab Emirates uh, funeral uh, for their recently departed leader, who is no longer in the land of the living. And that bespeaks the fact that uh, the United States relations with the, the UAE and its close friend Saudi Arabia have not been ideal. We've talked on this program about how the Saudis have refused the phone calls of Mr. Biden, and I think that that helps to bespeak why uh, Vice President Harris and her comrades were in uh, the UAE. Uh, but it'll take more than a high-level delegation to heal that wound because the United States, it seems to me, would be... Uh, it would be in its best interest to heal the wound with Iran in order to get Iranian oil back on the market. But the UAE and the Saudis are not necessarily uh, in support uh, of that maneuver. And at the same time, Washington has gotten a real black eye with regard to its support for the UAE and Saudi. This uh, is genocidal attack on neighboring Yemen. And uh, Washington feels that uh, that is no longer sustainable. So there are so many problems with the North Atlantic block right now that it makes one wonder if they, in fact, are the block that's being sanctioned as opposed to those that are seeking to sanction. RT reports Helsinki comments on hosting NATO bases or nukes. The prime minister says nuclear weapons are banned by law in Finland. And the Swedish Democratic Party is making it clear that while it supports seeking NATO membership, it would resist if asked to host foreign nuclear weapons or military bases. And one of the things that I've been taking away from some of President Putin's comments is, hey, Finland and Sweden, you can join NATO if you want to. But if you put nukes in your country, face in mind, you're going to have a serious problem on your hands. Uh, Dr. Horn. Well, clearly Helsinki and Stockholm did not think through the consequences downstream of seeking to join NATO. Uh, speaking of not thinking through the consequences, let me point you to the chairperson of the House Foreign Affairs Committee in Washington, speaking of Congressional Black Caucus member uh, Gregory Meeks of Queens, who has carried legislation that has passed the House 415-9 that would seek to punish African countries that are thought to be too close to Moscow. Now, we have reached a strange state of affairs when members of the black misleadership class are now seeking to punish African nations at the same time that black people are being mowed down like flies in the streets of Buffalo and on our need, desperate need, of international solidarity, African solidarity not least. So once again, you see Washington uh, ensnared in a snarl of contradictions and fissures. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Uh, It's being reported by a number of sources. U.N. Human Rights Chief's China visit confirmed, including Xinjiang. Michelle Bachelet will go to the far western region where Beijing is accused of human rights abuses. How significant of a story is this? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I don't know how much attention this has gotten in Western media, but with all of the human rights violation accusations that the United States has levied against China, I see China allowing this visit to speak volumes to the fact that there's no there there. It's a nothing burger in terms of the violations that China has been accused of. KJ, no. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, let's make this clear. China has invited thousands of lawyers, journalists, researchers, diplomats to Xinjiang, and they've all come back and saying there's nothing there. Nothing is going on. I mean, just in terms of sheer numbers, something close to 150, 160 million people visited Xinjiang before uh, the COVID, uh, you know, COVID made travel difficult. And so, you know, it's in, inconceivable that no one would have noticed. But if we just look at the large statistics, you know, simply the fact is that Xinjiang's population has grown. It's grown in multiples and its GDP has also grown in multiples. Uh, and the, the Uyghur population were actually exempt from the one child policy. And there's no genocide uh, on the planet that has ever existed under those conditions. No refugees, no hate speech, no hate crimes, uh, growth in population, growth in economy, uh, exemption from, you know, restrictive rules that other populations have to abide by, etc. So uh, just uh, this, hopefully this will put an end to all the lies. Now, what's interesting right now is that for several years, because of COVID, people have said, well, you know, China's not letting, you know, the UN visit because, you know, they're hiding something. But actually, no, China was not letting people visit because of COVID. Now they're making special accommodations to make this happen. And it's perfectly possible right now. But now that Bachelet is saying that she's going to visit, uh, all the same people who said, well, you're covering up, you know, nobody can go in there. It's a sealed, closed state, which is completely untrue. They're now saying, oh, she shouldn't go there. You know, she'll just be given a Potemkin tour. And, you know, that's an insult to everybody. It's an insult to Bachelet, you know, who is an accomplished lawyer uh, and, you know, has her own mind. It's an insult to the Chinese and it's also an insult to the global population. We know that nothing is happening and this will just be verification of that. And now they're trying to spin it another way. That said, Bachelet has been, uh, you know, hostile to China. But I think this may go a long way in alleviating some of her concerns, which she has uh, put forth in the media, largely because she's gotten them from the media. Well, I'm not so confident. I mean, even reading this, where Beijing is accused of human rights abuses, by whom? 
and based on what empirical data? You know what I mean? By the U.S. that accuses all of its adversaries of anything it can make up and it never has empirical data. It just accuses people that it hates of doing something that, if it were true, would be problematic. And as Voltaire said, any belief that is not founded in reason and logic will not be swayed by it. So I, I would expect that she'll go there and when she leaves, whatever she says, the U.S.'s uh, press will say, aha, that's exactly, it doesn't matter. She can walk out and say, well, I, I saw no um, evidence whatsoever, which would be expected, of um, any problems with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And the U.S. answer will be, we knew it. That proves it because they scared her or they had a magic potion and hypnotized. It doesn't matter because they're not saying this because it's real. They're saying it for effect. Am I too cynical, KJ? You're not at all. No, none of this is real, but it is absolute and total information warfare. It's total propaganda to delegitimize China and to build resentment, hatred, hate mongering against the Chinese and the Chinese government in order to justify kinetic war. It's the subkinetic or pre-kinetic dimension of this hybrid war against China. So, yes, absolutely. It's impervious to logic, and they will say that evidence, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. You know, they've been saying all of these absurd things. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, Beijing will do what it has to. Uh, she will be one more person out of the, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of experts who have visited and come back and declared a clean slate. Uh, you know, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Even the U.S. State Department lawyers itself, you know, said that, you know, we cannot find for this. There was the Uyghur Tribunal last year, which, um, you know, there was the International Criminal Court, which refused to even open a preliminary investigation, even though it has, uh, you know, wide latitude to do so, because it's, you know, essentially it said, you know, the case does not obtain. And the Uyghur Tribunal, which was based on years and years of collection of quote-unquote evidence, even they could not substantiate their own claims. The best they could come up with was that 5,000 500 people had putatively been detained. This is after making allegations of one, two, three, five, seven million people uh, detained and, and or genocided. So 5,005 people out of the 11 million population, you know, that's not extraordinary given that there is an ongoing campaign of, you know, ter- nationalistic, ethno-nationalistic terror and secession. And so all of this you know, it just goes to show you how weak, you know, how, you know, absolutely uh, impoverished this argument is. And yet, as you point out, you know, in the end, it boils down to people believing what they want to believe, because this is not about logic or facts. This is about ideology and ultimately about preparing, creating propaganda for war. Speaking of preparing for war, two stories out of Asia Times. One, Taiwan tests next generation armed drone. They completed the long range flight tests of its indigenous Tang Young 2 drone this month, marking an important step in its efforts to harden its own defenses and achieve self-sufficiency in producing weapons. And the second story 
From Asia Times, satellite reveals China's new nuclear attack sub. China may have built a new class of nuclear-powered attack submarine, as shown by satellite imagery. The pictures show a nuclear attack submarine with a bigger and longer hull, with green covers on its stern covering its propulsion system, adding to speculation whether the type features pump jet propulsion, which is quieter than traditional propeller systems. What do both of these stories say to you, uh, KJ, if anything? Well, it says a couple of things. One is the first thing we know is that the United States is crossing all of China's red lines around Taiwan, that it, it is trying to pull a Ukraine. It is trying to provoke China into kinetic war over uh, Taiwan. And this is because uh, Taiwan, which is a province of China, which almost all of the world recognizes as such, including the United States, the U.S. has been, you know, feeding it arms, training its military, giving it high-tech weapons, giving, uh, you know, uh, uh, sending official visits, de facto recognizing it as uh, a seceded uh, independent state rather than uh, a rump pretender uh, to a lost civil war and part of an unresolved part of China's, you know, history. And so, in that context, when we say that Taiwan is testing armed drones, uh, the first thing is that I would not I would not uh, acknowledge that they are indigenous. It's clearly U.S. technology. It's U.S. has given U.S. drone technology, Reaper drone technology, uh, firing Hellfire missiles or something similar. It's it's transferred that technology, and Taiwan is is building its own arms. Uh, the second piece around it is that China's, uh, you know, uh, attack sub, nuclear attack sub, you know, those are pictures, satellite pictures. So much of this is speculation. They don't know what kind of submarine it is. All they have is that it's a picture of a submarine. The rest is pure uh, speculation. But all this is to say is that, you know, there is an escalation or a heightening of tensions. Uh, China, the Chinese are expecting that war could break out in the South China Sea because the U.S. sees war in the South China Sea or over Taiwan as the most most advantageous to itself. It's done studies by RAND, which showed that if it went to war, U.S. GDP would drop from 5 to 10 percent, whereas China's GDP would drop from 25 to 30 percent. They feel that, you know, the cost is worth it, as uh, Madeleine Albright famously said. And also, you know, in the South China Sea, uh, you know, approximately 70, 77 percent of China's fuel travels through that, not to mention $5.3 trillion worth of trade. So just to have a shooting war in that area without the U.S. winning or losing, it would create such a disruption to China's economy that, you know, the theory is that China would buckle, submit, or even fracture. So this is the theory but, um, you know, once again, I think it speaks to the larger issue, which is that uh, one of the strategies that the U.S. has in arming Taiwan is what they call a porcupine strategy, which is to say that um, uh, this is the offset that they want to utilize against China's strength in, for example, missile attacks. That is, uh, China has overwhelming strength. Uh, and the 
offset against that is to use diffused or dispersed methods of warfare as well as automated warfare. And these drones are one way of, uh, you know, uh, advancing that uh, war doctrine. Uh, so just to go over, you know, the U.S. has a series of offsets. The first offset is mass, nuclear weapons. The offset against mass is precision. These are precision strike missiles. And the, and the uh, offset against precision is diffusion. And so this is part of the third and fourth offset that the U.S. is implementing a strategy against China. And this is clearly what's being implemented on, on Taiwan province. Well, the final point, there's a responsible statecraft piece. When U.S. pivot is seen as an expansion into Asia, it's time to talk about what we learned from NATO in Eastern Europe and its lessons for U.S. policy. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, Obama declared the pivot to Asia. It came with a war doctrine, an economic war doctrine. Trump discarded uh, the economic war doctrine, the TPP, and essentially uh, hit China frontally with sanctions. What uh, Biden did was when he came back was he rebranded this war against China, uh, the pivot to Asia, and he renamed it the Indo-Pacific Strategy, and he came up with a new version of the TPP called the IPEF, Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is a, a large emphasis on supply chain enclosure. But all of this is more of the same kind of belligerent expansionism and provocation and red line crossing that the U.S. engaged in in uh, the Ukraine against Russia. And we say exactly the same playbook being replicated. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, The Russian Perspective Isn't, quote-unquote, Propaganda. Americans pride themselves on their free press, despite the fact that their press is not really, quote-unquote, free. The fact that it's controlled by corporations does not make it any more free than it would be if it was controlled by the state. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Good to be back, Wilmer. Thank you. So the uh, piece in Orinoco Tribune continues, yet that belief in a free press persists, and so does the belief that a free press is something only found in the quote-unquote free world, that is, the United States and its allies. The rest of the world doesn't have a free press, according to this belief. Those poor wretches in countries like China, Iran, or Russia only have quote-unquote propaganda. And then the real point in here is dismissing Russia's viewpoint is dangerous and undemocratic. What say you, Steve Poikinen? Well, I like the way that uh, that he lays it out, too, a little bit down further in the piece where, uh, 
you know, person A just makes a statement about what's being said on the news. Why, you know, do we really need to send $40 billion to, to Ukraine? Do we need to arm Nazis? Oh, so you want Putin to win? Oh, so you're just for Russia? Oh, you're just a propagandist. The immediate dismissal of any any answer or response that isn't automatically in line with what the state is saying is received as and judged as propaganda, or you're now suddenly working with the enemy. That is absolutely dangerous. It's dismissal based on an almost religious fervor uh, that the state is correct at all times, no matter how contradictory the message on any given day. And the fact that we have a public-private partnership between the media and the government, now totally legal, with the Smith Modernization Act that Obama signed in 2012, making uh, opening the doorway completely between the Pentagon and the the news outlet to allow for government propaganda to be broadcast on the airwaves. I don't know how anyone is ten years removed from that could make the argument that we have a free press. You know, to say nothing of the fact that we have Julian Assange about to be extradited here. Exactly. You know, this reminds me of a book. Yeah, I love to read a lot of books. There's a there's a book by Patricia Evans called The Verbally Abusive Relationship. And in that book, she makes a list of things in discussion that are verbal abuse. And one of them is called discounting. And that is you simply imply that what your adversary, as it were, is saying is not worthy of consideration. You don't give a logical reason as to why they're incorrect. You just imply whatever they're saying is not worthy of consideration. And that's what we're talking about here, where people have uh, factual, uh, empirical data and evidence. This happened on such and such a date. If someone says, well, the Ukraine crisis was an unprovoked attack on Ukraine, and you say, well, I've got data here that suggests otherwise. Oh, that that's Russian. Putin Propaganda. would love to hear that. That's simply discounting. It's not saying that you're wrong. It's not saying that you're right. It's saying you're Information is not worthy of consideration, and that's dangerous. And that's really it's an it's 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 an anti-intellectual ploy. Your thoughts, Steve? Well, we've been on this this march to gradually dumb down and make more hyper reactionary uh, the American public in the West writ large for fifty to seventy years. On the outset, the post World War II Western society has been more about turning us into uh, what George Carlin referred to as obedient workers, people just smart enough to push the buttons, but dumb enough to accept the lower page and the lower pay and, and uh, the longer hours and the decreasing benefits and all of that. So we're, we're at this point now where, and I think we're going to be talking about it momentarily, where they just had to hit pause on the literal ministry of truth because of the pushback that it received. So people are at least cognizant enough in the moment to know that if the government walks out and says, we have a new branch of the government, of the Department of Homeland Security, that is in charge of what reality is, people are just awake enough to go, hang on, that sounds fuzzy. You know, but if you do it where you've got someone uh, from, you know, a former CIA director or a former director of Raytheon or a former general who's being presented as an expert on U.S. media with no context, 
then it's a little bit easier to slip the propaganda through. Do you know what I mean? So it, we're we're at kind of a a, a crossroads with uh, if if it's too obvious, people are still on top of it. But if it's just subtle enough, it becomes everybody's talking points at work the next day. Before we get to the disinformation board, let me just quickly say this: I've I've had the pleasure of going to Iran twice. And I've lectured at, I don't know, probably 12 or 13 different universities throughout the country. And I would think Iran is one of those countries that would be put on this list of not having a free press along with China and Russia and some of the others. I was amazed at how well-informed those students in a a repressive, authoritarian, uh, theocratic dictatorship – I was shocked at how well-informed those students are. That's just a perfect example of how all of this stereotyping doesn't work. DHS Disinformation Board put on pause. The Biden administration has put plans for a controversial, quote-unquote, disinformation board under the Department of Homeland Security on pause after the board's formation caused a widespread backlash, according to the Washington Post. And one of the things that Garland and I laughed about yesterday was that the article in the Post about the disinformation board, that article in the Post was disinformation. Steve Poikinen. Yes, yes, yes. And the disinformation board was brought down by the disinformation that its own board director and public face had been guilty of giving herself the 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 meme war okay the war of the memes it it was won by us yesterday briefly okay or it's not the war the the battle the battle because we really did win this through the dissemination of counter propaganda we really did But wait a minute, Steve. In in order for us to be victorious, you and Garland and I, we had to become part of the right wing because the far right wing, wing. because the Washington Post article said it was it was the far right wing's attack that brought down the disinformation board. So you had to go far right. I had to go far right. And Garland, well, he's always far right. Of course. You know, the funny thing is, though, like none of the recipes changed. The, the the barbecue sauce still tastes the same. The the macaroni salad doesn't have raisins in it. Like it's all still it's, everything's still. No, this is hilarious because when, when you've got a relatively small group of people uh, like the Biden administration and the sycophants that hang around the Biden administration to disseminate whatever nonsense is coming out of you know Sleepy Joe's head at any given moment. Um, Everything that contradicts your worldview, everything, every shred of information is automatically right wing. It's got to be because you, Joe Biden, is all things to all people. He's the new FDR, if you listen to Bernie Sanders. He's uh, the most progressive president we've ever had. He's the most, uh, you know, staunch defender of the military that we've ever had. He's both the friendliest to Wall Street and the friendliest to Main Street. So whatever perceived attack is coming at him has automatically got to be chucked into this right-wing box. And maybe that worked 20 years ago. He's Gumby, damn it. He's Gumby. Yeah. 
I mean, may, you know, may, maybe that landed at some point, but they've cried wolf so many times with so many of the just like most blatantly not right wing people on the planet that, that people are going, yeah, no, no, it's not that it's right wing. It's that you're wrong. And here's why. So it's just I don't know how I don't know. I don't know if it lands anymore. I don't. Well, Steve, I think here's part of it. They can't admit that there's a left-wing critique of the Democratic Party. They can't admit that, that there is an ideological group that is growing that is to the left of the Democratic Party as the Democratic Party moves further and further right. This is now the party of Bill Kristol and Max Boot and, you know, people of that nature. So for them to admit the reality would that there is a growing group to the left of the Democratic Party is to admit that they're steadily moving to the right. So this is and losing their base. Exactly. So this is anyone who tax, attacks us is far right because there is nobody to the left of us. What are your thoughts? Well, the problem with trying to claim all of the real estate is that eventually you're going to be attributed responsibility for all the people that live on that real estate. Right. So the Democrats are never going to yeah, they've been running away from the label socialist for my entire life. They're never going to admit publicly that there's a quote-unquote socialist bone in their body unless occasionally they throw out somebody like Bernie Sanders because they need the fundraising. Um, but, uh, but the fact is, you know, uh, an insane amount of, of millennials and Gen Z identify as socialist, identify as communist. They have an entirely different worldview away from what the modern Democratic Party is, which is, as you noted, the party of Max Boot and Bill Kristol, undeniably. Um, so they, they do this thing where they only claim the people that they've allowed to sit at the table already. They dismiss everybody else out of hand. And then anyone who pipes up they can shove into a right-wing box because like me or like you or like Max Blumenthal, we've all had a cogent thought in the last several years, and it is conflicted with the version of reality that the Democrats have tried to put forward. George W. Bush admits brutal and wholly unjustified invasion of Iraq in what is called a Freudian gaffe. Your thoughts on George Bush's speech? Well, I mean, Freud was trending on Twitter yesterday, <laughs> and every time you clicked on it, it was that clip of George W. Bush. This is there's a couple of different ways to look at, it. and one certainly is that oh, that's just you know W doing W and, and and saying the quiet part out loud, but he's really saying the very loud part out loud in case anyone forgot. George Bush has made, you know, gaffes or flubs like this throughout his entire career. He's referred to the top zero zero one percent of the country as his base. You know, this is I it it seems less and less like an accident and more and more like a controlled release of information <laughs> looked at over a, a long enough timeline. I mean, I don't know. Every sea student I know was really smart. They were just bored. And I, I, I think that the character of George W. Bush is much more that uh, a character, not that he's, you know, a, probably a little incurious and, and maybe hasn't had to work as hard as everyone. But I don't believe that he's dumb. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's funny because when I was in law school, the adage was the A students become teachers, the B students become judges, and the C students make all the money. So right, <laughs> Steve Poikin. They become president. Steve Poikin, and as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Oh, thank you, fellas. It's been great. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. As we continue with our ongoing struggle with COVID, what is monkeypox? The rare virus is now confirmed in the U.S. and Europe. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's a public health expert, board-certified pediatrician, and obesity medicine specialist with an online telemedicine practice at AskDrYola.com. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So Massachusetts Health Authority said yesterday that they confirmed a case of a rare and sometimes serious viral illness called monkeypox, the first infection identified in the U.S. this year amid a rash of cases outside the disease's typical territory. Dr. Hancock, help us out. Yes, like, as if we didn't didn't have enough to deal with, with this current surge of COVID-19. Yes, so we now have monkeypox in the country, and I apologize if I giggle, because when you hear the name monkeypox, I keep hearing a monkey's (laughs) noises in the background. So we know that monkeypox has been around since around the 1950s, usually remaining on the continent of Africa, somewhere in the Central and West African regions. The reason why it's called monkeypox is that's exactly where it came from. We usually see this uh, disease within, within primates, within the monkey population. Um, very rarely do we see it outside of the monkey population. It's usually because of contact with either the sores themselves, some sort of uh, bodily fluid. What's concerning about this current outbreak of monkeypox, particularly in the European Union, is that there has not been identified a direct sick contact, meaning the person who now was diagnosed with monkeypox cannot remember that they were in close proximity to someone who had it. And just so folks know, the way that it is transmitted, just in case anyone's like, great, now I've got to panic about this too. Usually the transmission for monkeypox is through direct contact with the sores. Clearly, hopefully you're paying attention to the people who you're sitting next to. Uh, you also, you have to mind, be mindful, though, like if you're flying, traveling in any space where there are um, surfaces that may be contaminated, someone with monkeypox could put their arm on an armrest, get off the plane, and then you get on it. There is a risk if you have an open sore of it being transmitted. If you come into contact with bodily fluids or if you are in close proximity because there is 
the possibility of transmission through respiratory droplets, not in the same way that COVID is. So I want people to be like, oh, great, now like we have to, everybody's putting a mask on. But if you are in close proximity and talking to someone for an extended period of time with monkeypox, you are at risk for um, getting monkeypox as well. You know, something I'm wondering about, I watched this, um, I used, it used to come on, I used to watch this program, and basically they would show weird diseases where, like, somebody in Brooklyn would come at down with a disease that they hadn't seen since, you know, 1863 or something, and they don't know how it popped up. Is it possible that people just get diseases and carry them around, and some people are, you know— susceptible to it and some people aren't and then just out of the blue it happens to get to somebody or transform within somebody and it um it pops up because I, I it just seems so odd to me the way just someone on a continent out of the blue comes down with monkey pox of all things i don't know what do you think right no i completely agree with you i mean it's not like we haven't collectively traveled to central or western africa before and there have been an outbreak of monkey pox before and somehow uh, we have been historically protected until 2022. To your point, it is likely that there may have been a case or two in the past. I think what makes this so unique is the number of infections and the diversity in terms of where we're finding where we're finding these infections happening, right? So we're seeing infections happening in Europe. We're seeing them happen in the UK. And now we have our first case here in the United States. That's what's making this so concerning is one uh, the widespread cases, relatively speaking, I say that with a grain of salt, given how widespread COVID is, but the expectation is that we should not simultaneously see this infection, at least on two different continents thus far. The other is the number of people who are experiencing it. Clearly, we may be on a higher level of alert, given what we have just experienced over the past um, two years. The other thing we have to keep in mind is if there is now community spread, community transmissibility of monkeypox, this changes the game. If there has now been a mutation where before, to your point, Mr. Nixon, it just fell under the radar, but now monkeypox has mutated, and now you don't need a monkey to transmit monkeypox anymore. Now it's human-to-human transmission. That changes the game and will impact how seriously we take this infection. I want to go back to a point that you made earlier. I think this was a point that you made in the United Kingdom, they have no travel links to a place where monkeypox is regularly found and it's not known to spread easily between humans. So when you put on your virologist hat, what does that say to you? That says exactly what I just mentioned, that there is significant concern for mutation that has facilitated easier human-to-human transmission. That's the thing that we have to be worried about. Has this disease mutated to the point where we no longer need a vector in order to become infected. What do we know about the how deadly this disease is? How bad, you know, because I know. How do you know if you have it? Yeah. Uh, you know, because and, and, you know, like chicken pox and things like that. We know about that. And it wasn't really deadly. But it, at any rate, but where smallpox killed a whole lot of folks, where's monkeypox fall in there? It's hard to know. I, I will be honest with you. I don't know a lot about monkeypox because we have not had to deal with monkeypox here in the United States, at least not in, in a significant clinical way. It, what I think it's important to recognize are the symptoms of monkeypox. One is flu-like symptoms. So again, if you have flu-like symptoms, first get yourself COVID tested. But because I want people panicking, like they have flu-like symptoms, all of a sudden they think they have monkeypox. So if you have flu-like symptoms, 
if you have significant swelling of your lymph nodes, because with monkeypox, you get a very significant immune response. And then eventually you get these fluid filled bumps all over your body. You, if you get that, you're going to know that you have monkeypox. It's different than chickenpox. Chickenpox is um, the way that we describe it is that it's ridiculously puritic or itchy. Two, you have lesions in various stages of healing. So for chickenpox, you may have some red or dark brown dots on your skin. You may have some um, bumps that look like the dew on a flower. And then you may also have lesions or areas that have scabbed over because you've scratched the top of the skin off and now it is scabbing. With monkeypox, it's not necessarily an itchy rash, but it is an uncomfortable rash. What I find interesting is that people who flew with monkeypox likely knew they had some sort of funky rash and illness and still got on a plane. This goes back to something we've talked about time and time again, and that's the importance of public health measures and precautions and people not operating in a selfish space. If you are sick with a rash, a fever, and swollen lymph nodes, that's the signal not to get on a plane. Instead, seek medical attention, get tested to make sure you don't have monkeypox, wait out your course, improve, and then travel back to wherever you were going. This may sound silly, but I'm serious in asking this question. Does it make sense if you have to travel to wear long sleeve shirts, wear long long pants, so that your skin doesn't come in direct contact with the seats, with the armrests, as you're in the airport, as you're on the airplane? That's a very good question. Um, yes. The first thing that I always do on a plane, even prior to COVID-19, is wiping down the seats. I put a glove on. I wipe seats down. I wipe trays, all those things. But that's just me historically being OCD. Now it's, it's appropriate. The same thing, especially if you are traveling from or to one of these higher-risk areas. And to the question that Mr. Nixon asked earlier in terms of severity of illness, what we do know in the U.K. is that this is a milder strain of monkeypox in the United Kingdom. It's not clear what the strain is in Massachusetts, but we know that this is a milder strain in in the UK that is facilitating this infection. In the Congo Basin in Africa, there is the risk, there is a small risk of, monk, of death associated with monkeypox. About one in 10 people who have been infected with monkeypox in the Congo have passed away due to this infection based on data from the World Health Organization. And so I don't want people to think that it's as mild as chickenpox. If one in 10 people died with chickenpox, that would be a heck of a lot of people. But this has been associated with about a 10% mortality, at least of the more severe strain on the continent. Question. The term pox, because when I monkey mm-hmm. pox, chicken pox, I mean, I don't know why they always animals. I guess the animals must get them. But the term pox, what does that mean? Pox is really the presentation of the rash. That's what lets us know. So it's a it's a culmination of these um, fluid-filled blisters. So when you think about smallpox back in the day, it was clusters of these blister-like rashes with chickenpox, as I described earlier. Some of the rash that we see are these uh, fluid-filled blisters as well. And one of the things that they were talking about in terms of risk is that in my generation, this is the first generation out from the smallpox vaccine, which puts us collectively across the globe at a higher risk of these pox-like infections. And that's one of the other reasons why this is so concerning. Quickly, 
the uh, FDA has now authorized a coronavirus booster shot for children as young as five. They did this on Tuesday for school-age children. They say a key step toward making a third shot available to five to 11-year-olds as cases rise nationally. I think it's important quickly to note cases are rising again, and now we've got booster shots for children as young as five. Absolutely. So cases have now increased by an additional close to 65% with this particular booster. Pfizer did a study on 4,500 children. They were able to demonstrate a over 36-fold increase in the immune response after the third dose. There were no increased risk of safety issues with this third dose, which is why one of the main reasons why the FDA felt comfortable enough to approve this third dose. The CDC meets today to give final approval. It will likely be um, ready to rock and roll either by tomorrow or by Monday. Do we know anything about the subvariant BA2, any difference in it, anything that we need to know, of, you know, that we found of note about this? This is any difference than the BA1? Absolutely. So BA2 is pretty comparable to BA1, maybe a little bit milder in terms of symptomatology. However, it's definitely more infectious. The variant we really have to pay attention to right now is BA2.1, 2.1, the daughter of BA.2. It's actually the most infectious version of COVID we have been dealing with thus far over the past two weeks. There has been such an increase in transmission that it now makes up close to 48% of all new COVID-19 cases. And this is the subvariant that came out of New York just a couple of weeks ago. So now are going into summer, kids are out of school, going to camp, a lot more travel. Do you have any projections as to what we can expect with relates to COVID for the summer? I think over the next two to three weeks, we're definitely going to see numbers continue to rise, not only because of BA.2, 2.1, but also BA.4 and BA.5. By the time children get out of school, I anticipate we will have reached our peak. Numbers will start to have come down and children will be able to enjoy summer camp. I would still tell parents to keep a mask on your babies unless they are outdoors. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, folks, go to AskDrYola.com. Go to AskDrYola.com for access to her telemedicine practice. Uh, we greatly, greatly appreciate uh, that insight, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Black Agenda Report has a piece entitled The New White Supremacist Consensus Part 2, Shootings in Buffalo Solidify the Consensus. It opens the latest mass shooter in Buffalo, New York, was clearly a racist and identified with Ukrainian and other neo-Nazis. But white supremacy has a stronger hold on European and U.S. society than is commonly acknowledged. The avowed racist is not the only problem. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report. He serves on the 
executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee of the Black is Back Coalition. Ajamu Baraka, as always, Ajamu, welcome back. Glad to be here. Thank you. You write, quote, the incidents of mindless mass carnage in the United States have become so routine that they do not even make national headlines unless the incident has a potential attention grabbing twist. One of those dramatic twists is when the victims of a mass shooting are from a common social identity and the perpetrator appeals to be motivated by hatred of the targeted group. This is what makes the shooting in Buffalo stand out. The authorities could not hide the fact that it was a hate crime and the media saw a juicy story if for only a day or two, end quote. Two things. When you look at the profile of these shooters, they fit a profile and we don't look at the as well as we don't look at the systemic issues of white supremacy, such as the U.S. sending billions of dollars to support Nazis in Ukraine and Zionists in Israel, while Biden denounces the poison of white supremacy and the racist replacement theory. Ajamu Baraka. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, uh, Joe Biden, who I will consider to be a white supremacist, uh, is, a, is pretending to lead the fight against what he refers to and some and many Democrats refer to as white supremacy. And the white supremacy that, that they are referring to is sort of the uh, crude, clownish uh, uh, behavior of, of the, the pot belly Mississippi state, uh, state uh, patrol person, uh, the, the Trump and some of Trump's uh, supporters, as opposed to the more insidious white supremacists uh, individuals and and practices represented by himself, uh, and the policies being uh, uh, advanced by the U.S. state and their Western allies. Because in essence, you know, we say that there's the that white supremacy is is the combined ideological and structural expression of white power. That these folks are committed to the maintenance. Uh, an expansion of European power, the power that they began to assume once they spilled out of Europe beginning in 1492. So, you know, this this idea of the superiority of white civilization, uh, the institutions, the structures of Europe, you know, is so ingrained in the consciousness of people that it's become invisible. And so the only references to so-called white supremacy are, are those references of these more crude, you know, Klansmen-like uh, 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 references. But the more insidious, like uh, the president of, of Ukraine, Zelensky, and his calls to support the West and talking about Europeanness uh, and European values and that what is happening in Ukraine is the worst thing to have ever happened since the end of the Second World War. All of these represent, you know, a, uh, a normalized white supremacy that is more more dangerous for us than the uh, clownish activities of a Donald Trump. 
You know, one of the things, and as you know, we've been covering this Nazi stuff in Ukraine here on this show heavily for the last year. And one of the discussions that we've had here, and you've been a part of it, has come to fruition, and that is if you say to young, impressionable minds, that person over there is a hero, and you lionize this group, they're going to see this site like some kind of a superhero. In the U.S., even now in the media, the Azov are their best fighters. They're the, the vanguard of the U.S. of the Ukrainian, Ukrainian military, they're tough. They're and you, then when people they're like, engaged in a noble cause. Yes, a noble cause. They're valid. And then when people like this young guy goes on online and he sees their patch and he looks it up and they're neo Nazis, his own government has told him that people with a neo Nazi ideology is a hero. Is it no surprise that he would take on that ideology and feel that he was acting on a noble cause, Ajamu? Exactly. He made a choice. He, he, he has identified with, quote unquote, his people. Uh, he believes, as Zelensky believes, that the West is under attack, that uh, the West can't be displaced by these, these, these barbarians either coming from the Slavic people of, of, of Russia or these African-Americans who are uh, in his, what he sees as his country in the U.S., and like the Azov Battalion that uh, are engaged in this struggle against the uh, Russian barbarians, uh, he has taken up his fight to beat back the uh, individuals, the communities that are, are, are replacing him here in the United States of America. And you're right. In both of these expressions in their uh, uh, crude forms are part of one struggle. And that struggle is to maintain uh, their imagination of, of, of white, white uh, supremacy, white power, uh, and they're just operating on two different fronts. And, you know, but that's why we've got to be very clear about what is unfolding, because with this kind of support that, they are, that the U.S. state has generated through the, with, their, with their media for supporting um, Ukraine and supporting the Ukrainian state, uh, and in the process, whitewashing the existence of these white supremacists, lionizing, as you said, this Azov battalion, they are, in fact, providing a dangerous ideological bridge between the Azov battalion types um, and the uh, white supremacists in the U.S., and those people who are white supremacists and don't know it yet, because they can combine together in defending what they will, will refer to as white civilization. Uh, and that is dangerous because that seems to be the appeal that uh, uh, President Zelensky uh, has made that's galvanizing all of this support for the struggle in Ukraine, a defense of the white West. I want to go back to the point I made at the open about this shooter fitting a profile that most of these shooters, not all, but most of these shooters are young, they're white, they're disaffected, but the media does not speak of them in a, the context of a profile. We continue to deal with these issues as though they happen in a vacuum, they happen in a silo, or they're isolated instances. Because if they if they spoke in that context, that would then lead to more of a systemic discussion that you're talking about. And we don't hear, for example, 
uh, people talking about the impact of Patrick Buchanan's book, The Death of the West, How Dying Populations and Immigrant Invasions Imperil Our Country and Civilization. Patrick Buchanan was a writer for Richard Nixon. They don't talk about former Congressman Stephen King from Iowa, the Republican, who talked about we can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. You can't build your civilization. You've got to keep up your birth rate. You have to need you have the need to teach your children your values. Those ideas resonate. And so they try now to poo-poo this whole issue of replacement theory, but you have very prominent Americans in political positions that are perpetuating these ideas. Exactly. Exactly. And and, and that's that's the challenge. That is the threat that we, we are facing. That we have this this legitimation of of, of white power, this normalization of the of, of white uh, power of white people being in charge. And people are not having the ability to be able to recognize for themselves, to recognize for themselves their own interests and what deviates uh, and what differentiates their interests from the interests of of of, of white of the white West, and that becomes very very problematic for us because what it means is we end up being mobilized in support of their interests to the detriment of ours. I think this discussion also puts an exclamation mark on the need to oppose imperialism because Joe Biden came out and said, you know, that white supremacy has replaced jihadism as the number one problem, whatever. The threat United to, States threat to the West. Threat to the West. The United States created the jihadis in Afghanistan and continues to support them today. And actually, it's pretty much the same to some extent. They they didn't completely recreate them, but they helped them to to be reborn in Ukraine. And so it's it, that's why I say it's, it shows the importance of opposing the evil of imperialism. And, and don't leave out the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi and how that contributed to this whole quote-unquote jihadi movement. As Gaddafi warned Obama, you mess with those people in the West and you're going to open a Pandora's box that you cannot control. And uh, Obama ignored that sage advice and we now are where we are. It's really ironic, as you say, that basically the thing that the, the elements that they have identified as being the most threatening to the U.S. are also the same elements that they've been supporting worldwide, that they, they made a conscious decision to utilize jihadists beginning in 2007 uh, in, uh, in Iraq and then into, into Syria. Uh, they have decided, and Hillary Clinton sort of exposed that they were prepared to utilize white supremacist forces in you in Ukraine, uh, who are going to be uh, who are going to be u- utilizing their uh, their hatred and their 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 fighting skills in support of the white West. Uh, so these are how they see the the world. Again, we've got to understand their plan and their uh, their ability to call us with whatever forces they see that are to their advantage in order to ensure that their strategic, economic, and political objectives are met. And that is the lesson that people have to bring away from the Ukraine situation, that they are prepared uh, to use these forces to advance themselves, that Joe Biden and the Democrats are, are play the role to 
provide a cover for for these activities, uh, and that for black people and poor people and people of color, we have to understand that their interests, their worldview, are in a fundamental contradiction to ours. And that is a lesson we have to pull from this because our very existence is being threatened. Because it's quite clear they are prepared to completely destroy the planet in order to maintain white supremacy. They are blundering their way, stumbling their way toward a possible nuclear confrontation with the Russians because they are unprepared to accept the fact that they can no longer dominate the planet. And for those who still want to challenge or question about the, the reference to Nazis in Ukraine, you can go back to NBC in 2014. They were reporting when President Obama did not want to arm the Ukraine because of the Nazis. The NBC did a whole story about Nazis in Ukraine, but somehow all of that has been forgotten because the interests that are being defended now have changed. Exactly. And in the process of, re- of erasing the existence of Nazis in Ukraine and fascism by, by providing a, a heroic image to the Azov Battalion, they have, in effect, produced this young man that went into uh, our the black community and murdered 13 people. So blood is on their hands, like blood is on their hands for all of the the wicked activities that they have been involved in for the last few centuries. And for that, uh, we've got to be clear that unless we take power from these elements, uh, we are facing an existential threat for collective humanity. Ajamu Baraka, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Responsible statecraft has a piece entitled Biden's promise to end endless war hits a snag in Somalia. The U.S. is reportedly redeploying troops with AFRICOM, receiving a green light on drone strikes. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an independent journalist and historian, Thomas Mountain. Thomas, Welcome back. Thank you. Before we get to that particular issue, Representative Gregory Meeks, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee from New York, has uh, been able to get passed out of the House of Representatives the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act. Uh, Can you speak to this? Because this really seems to be the United States trying to chastise African countries that have direct relationships with Russia, even though Joe Biden talks a lot about respecting sovereignty, respecting democracy, this really seems to be the United States trying to use its leverage to punish African countries who are doing business with Russia. Well, the United States is pretty desperate when it comes to, you know, in regards to Africa, because they're, you know, Western countries in general. I mean, 
they're lashing out kind of hysterically. You know, the U.S. is actually supposedly going to be starting up a um, naval flotilla in the Red Sea for the first time, permanently stationed there. And uh, I think they're particularly concerned about Eritrea because Eritrea is the only country that actually voted in support of the Russians in this latest confrontation in the U.N. So Eritrea has got you know, the Red Sea coastline. They've got two major ports there, the, the port in the south and Opsab, quite close to the Baha'u'llah-Mandeb, the strategically critical choke point between the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea, is uh, a major port that uh, uh, is not really being used right now. So uh, the United States is really worried that, you know, Eritrea and Russia is growing closer. They've announced a number of cooperation agreements. And I think this Eritrea is at the top of the list in targeting and all this. But, uh, you know, uh, there's other things going on, too, right now, like, like you know, in Somalia, right? I mean, I, I think it's very telling that, and I think this should tell you what's really going on, that the Eritrean president, Isaias Afewerki, did not send a congratulatory message to the new Somali president. And uh, the fact that uh, uh, the African command troops left Stuttgart on a 10-hour flight and arrived just a few hours after the new Somali president was inaugurated, uh, you know, they were in the air before he was even president. So how could he have authorized their coming there? So this was like almost like a coup d'etat, a regime change coup d'etat in Somalia, because the previous president, Formajo, had made peace with Eritrea, had made peace with Ethiopia. Um, he visited Eritrea and said some very positive things about the country, sort of like uh, Abi Ahmed had done. And he also had denounced the slander campaign against Eritrea, claiming the West had made against Eritrea, that used as a basis for illegal sanctions against Eritrea to uh, claiming Eritrea supporting al-Shabaab and terrorism in Somalia. And he actually came out and said, no, this is all a lie. It's not true. So he was definitely on the U.S. And so, uh, you know, his removal, I mean, I wrote an article about 10 years ago saying, you know, Somali election farce, because this election was the, the, the government in Somalia picked all the members of parliament that elected the president. So there wasn't, you know, any, I mean, they have to choose from various clan groups and they have to play ball politically within the Somali clans. But I mean, you know, I mean, this was like the U.S. got a regime change and they got rid of Formaggio and put back the previous president who had been admired in so much corruption and crime and, and gangsterism and, and led the country down the toilet into trying to do something about al-Shabaab. And the Americans came in and put him back in power by leading on the Somali you know, the, the the government there. So any case, um, I think that's kind of telltale. Now, a lot of your readers probably really don't know much about Somali history, and I think I'd try to give a brief, brief background so they could understand. You see, Somalis have never had a king in history. Never. In thousands of years, they've never been one king of Somalia. It wasn't until after World War II that Syed Bare became the president of the newly independent Somalia, that they had a, a one leader that united most of Somalis. So Sid Bari was actually a real hero of Pan-Africanism in Africa and provided the most concrete support for the African independence, anti-apartheid, anti-white supremacist struggles in, for the freedom fighters from Angola, Mozambique, South Africa, Zimbabwe, and especially from Eritrea against the uh, Abyssinian imperialism in Ethiopia. I mean, Eritrean uh, freedom fighters from the Eritrean People's Liberation Front are actually able to travel internationally on diplomatic passports provided from by Syed Syed Bare in Somalia. So, you know, he's the only one that ever helped Eritrea. And so the Americans wanted him gone. And when he got sick by the end of uh, 1990, the Americans initiated a 
a breakaway Somaliland in the north, and then when he died, they instituted a program to base, basically dismember Somalia. And I need, you know, the Americans actually invaded Somalia back then, remember? And we had this famous movie, Black Hawk Down, about what was actually an entirely white, white supremacist unit of the special forces in the United States military that attacked a Somali peace conference that included 200 of the senior clan leaders and religious leaders in Somalia that had met in Mogadishu to plan out the peaceful reunification of Somalia. This white supremacist outfit within the U.S. military attacked and killed all these people and ended any chance of Somalia having peace. It was a deliberate plan by the U.S. Now, again, in 2006, the Union of Islamic Courts, a uh, independent nationalist Islamic movement unified the people of Mogadishu and drove the gangsters out and brought a peace to Mogadishu for the first time in 15 years and set about establishing peace in Somalia. Well, because they were, you know, Somalia is like 20 miles from the Baab al-Mandeb. The Americans aren't going to allow an Islamic government that's nationalist and independent to, to take power. So they sent their policemen on the beat, the Ethiopians, and to attack, to invade Somalia, and, you know, destroy the Union of Islamic Courts. Um, Ethiopians, in all their history, they'd never attacked Somalia before. They were actually forced, the, the gangster regime of the TPLA, led by Mela Sinawi, was forced by the U.S. to take this action. And it basically, historically, the Ethiopians and the Somalis are historically enemies. So it just initiated an uprising of Somali nationalism that raged for two years and killed something like 20 or 30,000 Ethiopian Jews, finally drove the Ethiopians out of the country. And the result was the older, more mature, reason, you state, uh, seasoned leaders of fugitive Islamic courts was driven out of the country by the Ethiopians. And Al-Shabaab, which means the youth, the youth wing of the Union of Islamic Courts had taken up the struggle to drive the Somalis, uh, the Ethiopians out. Now, what, after they pretty much drove the Ethiopians out, the support from most likely from the Wahhabis uh, in the Saudi royal family give the enough support to the terrorist uh, fanatic elements of basically Al Qaeda ISIS, and they were able to prevail and take over Al Shabaab. So now this you have this war in, in Somalia fighting a terrorist organization, which was the direct result of the U.S. invasion intervention in Somalia, and by sending the Ethiopian their policemen on the beat in there to, you know, create chaos and crisis management, create a crisis, the better to manage the loot and plunder and control the country. So you've got this whole history of Somalia just being brutalized by the United States. And now you have, you know, a, a regime change, a new pro-U.S. leader, and you've got U.S. troops flying to Somalia before he's even president to authorize them coming there. So, you know, and Richian's looking at all this in Eritrea, who's got a long history of Somalia and trying their best to keep Somalia from falling apart in the first place was looking at this going, huh, you know, no thanks. We know what's going on. Is, so, it, you know, the other thing I, I kind of wanted to raise, because next door to Somalia, and this is something the U.S. is very worried about, is, is what's going on in Ethiopia. And the U.N. yesterday very quietly released a report that in the past year, five million Ethiopians have been made internally displaced persons by the CIA-sponsored and instigated coup d'etat attempt by the terrorist Tigar People's Liberation Front, TPLF regime. Five million people in one year, that's a world record. Never happened before. And there's been not a word of this in the international press. Five million people in one year became IDPs left destitute by an action taken by the CIA, and nothing about this. And this on top of the fact that the TPLF terrorists have previously announced 
that they lost at least 350,000, more like 500,000 of their youth attempting to attack the rest of Ethiopia. That's something like 20% of the Tigray people under the age of 30 have died in this war in the last year and a half. A million deaths? I mean, half a million deaths in the last year and a half? And again, nothing in the West about this. And now the TPLF has announced they're going to be launching a new war. They announced it. And, and they said even that they're going to be doing this to get back at Eritrea. And there's been a, a leak of a, of a satellite conversation between the head of the TPLF, Debrecen, and his supporters outside, where he said that we are getting, using the aid that we're receiving from the UN to feed our army. Wait a minute, thousands of tons of aid from the UN is going to feed the TPLF army, and the leader of the TPLF admits this? And it, nothing is said about this? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, there, you know, oh, there's the genocide in Tigray and the Ethiopian government starving the Tigrayan people. No, their own leadership of the TPLF saying, we're using this aid to feed our army because he says, how else are we going to get food to feed our army? Literally, that's a quote. How else are we going to get food to feed our army if we don't get it from the UN? So it's not, you know, when they always talk about Africans fighting Africans, no, this is all instigated by people outside, you know? So I think uh, maybe I've given your listeners some background. (laughs) Yes. And let me ask you this. The other thing I was thinking about, how does the Chinese base in Djibouti play into this? Is that a big part of it also? Yes, it is. I mean, the Chinese base is actually headed to be 10,000 men, the largest base of any foreign country in Africa. And uh, so, you know, and Chinese, China is supposed to be building a gas pipeline from Djibouti to Ethiopia. And so, you know, the U.S. is on the back foot and nobody in Africa will let them come in and have a base except Djibouti. And even Djibouti is under a lot of pressure now from Ethiopia, because when the, uh, the Americans at one point threatened to invade Ethiopia from their base in Djibouti in the war. So, you know, China is looking good in terms of helping Africa. Um, there's been a ma- market decrease in Chinese investment in Africa in the last few years, but Chinese, China, I think, is now starting to step up to the plate after reevaluating what they've been doing. And we're hoping with the new protocol agreement with Ethiopia there, they're going to be uh, coming back with some of their promises because, uh, you know, an oil pipeline, I mean, a gas pipeline from the Ogaden to China, I mean, to uh, Djibouti would be a major help to the whole Horn of Africa in terms of energy independence and money coming into Ethiopia, which they desperately need. And uh, so, you know, I think uh, China has got a major role to play, and I'm hoping they step up to the plate. The New York Times reported Monday that the U.S. Central AFRICOM is redeploying troops to Somalia. And, you know, this doesn't this doesn't sound to me like de-escalation. It sounds to me like escalation, especially in the context of five African countries and six coups on the on the continent within about the last 18 months. Yeah, well, you know, the. Uh, Americans are, like I say, they're trying to play catch up in the region and uh, they're kind of desperate. So they're, they're doing a lot of crazy things. And going back into Somalia is one of them because, you know, the Somali people, you know, they've had enough of the Americans. They were there for many, many years. And the Somalis know what the crimes Americans have committed against them. I mean, the U.S. and the U.N. Uh, oversaw the, the mass starvation of 250,000 Somalis from 2010 to 2012, mostly children under the age of five. A quarter million Somalis starved to death under the U.S. and U.N. watch. I mean, the Somalis know this. So why would they want anybody to come in their country? It's just one of their duly proxy leaders that the U.S. installed that's allowing these guys, Americans to come back. Thomas Mountain, 
thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Venezuelan analysis has a piece, Venezuela to engage with oil companies as Washington eases restrictions. Venezuela's government and opposition confirmed preparations to restart talks in Mexico with U.S. sanctions relief on the horizon. What does this mean going forward? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst and editor at Venezuelan Analysis, Ricardo Vaz. As always, Ricardo, welcome back. Hey, as always, great to be back. So uh, a couple weeks ago, a U.S. delegation went to Venezuela to meet with President uh, Nicolas Maduro. They did not meet with uh, the fictional president, Juan Guaido. And to beg, they went with oil barrels in hand, begging for uh, Venezuela to provide more oil. Is what we're seeing here now a result of those meetings? Um, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, we were struggling with the headline because, I mean, you know that the corporate media has been known to misrepresent the situation in Venezuela and, and to misrepresent sanctions in particular. So what we saw this week was a very modest step. That's why we just used the term ease restrictions, which is basically that Washington gave permission to Chevron to talk to Venezuelan state oil company PDVSA. So if you want to have a, uh, an idea of just how draconian and absurd U.S. sanctions are, is that uh, the people are not even allowed to talk to sanction of, sanctioned officials or companies. So basically Chevron, which is the last of the large oil corporations that still has a presence in Venezuela, they are the ones that are lobbying to increase their activities. So basically, sanctions were meant to quickly get rid of the Maduro government that, as we know, hasn't exactly worked out. And so now they want to to ramp up their activities. They have been lobbying for a while. And then, as you were mentioning, this meeting with between Maduro and the White House delegation, which was actually two months ago, actually time flies here in Venezuela. <laughs> and Chevron is the, is the company that, that's more well positioned to ramp up uh, output relatively quickly and perhaps alleviate a bit the hit that's been felt in the US because of the ban on US on uh, Russian imports, I should say. But but this is all preliminary because Chevron, so just to finish, uh, Chevron does not have any authorization to sign anything. So they're just going to talk and then see if the Treasury Department is in a good mood, if the if the, if the Florida lobby is in a good mood to actually allow them to ramp up a 
One of the things that I see here, even here, the U.S. State Department is still up to no good because here's an interesting sentence. An anonymous source told Bloomberg that the alleged relaxation of restrictions against Venezuela's oil sector would include allowing European oil companies, quote, to divert Venezuelan oil bound for China to Europe in a move to address scarce oil supplies and skyrocketing fuel costs. Yeah, but in Europe. So they're saying, hey, the the country that's been helping you out during the pandemic, sending you stuff to help you out, uh, going around the— Stocking your stores. Yeah, going around the uh, sanctions to help you out. All right, and we've been giving you the shaft. We want you. We want to steal their oil and keep it. I mean, they they just can't do right, Ricardo, (laughs) under any circumstances. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean— and it's actually pretty interesting that this is an anonymous official talking to Bloomberg. So he could have chosen his word differently, right? The fact that they use, they use this expression twice. Not, they're not, they don't talk about buying oil or you know, having a contract to secure oil. They talk about diverting oil. So, I mean, of course, they will have to find a way to pay for it. I mean, so it's not just giving oil away. But it's interesting that they mention diverting oil that, that's found for China. Of course, I mean, if we're talking in pure economic terms, it's much better for Venezuela to sell oil to Europe because it's closer than China. But I, I, I'm actually wondering, I mean, you, you all, if you, you two know this better than, than I do, that sometimes there's a smoke screen that makes you look this way, when in fact there's something else going on. So here, maybe we had this very preliminary talks with Chevron. We had some very, very preliminary statements about restarting dialogue between the government and the opposition. And I actually wonder, you know, the, the one concrete thing is that European companies are allowed to get some oil cargoes if this is all just a big diversion to address the, the economic the energy crisis in Europe, as, you know, Europe is the one, as, as Garon has explained time and again, feeling the brunt of, of the conflict in Ukraine. You know, I've never met President Maduro, but I will say he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would divert oil away from a benefactor such as China in order to benefit those who have been trying to overthrow his government and put sanctions on his country. Uh, But the question that I have here is if Venezuela is going to talk to an oil company about restarting production in, in Venezuela, why talk to Chevron? Why, why isn't it Citgo? Uh, yeah, I mean, Citgo would make sense because, you know, it's a Venezuelan company right. to begin with. But Chevron, uh, I mean, if, if it, we don't have to go, to go very far back. When sanctions started to be ramped up, basically the U.S. threatened every foreign oil corporation into winding down activities in Venezuela. But the only one that kept a foothold was Chevron because, I mean, they just imagined themselves being in, in prime position once there was an opportunity to to restart. The, the issue is that Chevron does have joint oil operations. And so purely from a, a practical standpoint, and also the fact that, of course, the U.S. is going to look to favor its own corporations, it would be the one that's most well positioned to ramp up uh, production faster. If we're talking about long-term investment, of course, ideal partners would be, again, the Chinese companies, as you were mentioning. And just to, just to, to strike on your last point, if you remember this meeting that happened in, in March, one of the things that the, the U.S., the, the White House delegation perhaps foolishly demanded was that Maduro distance himself and distance the government from Russia. And not only has that not happened, 
there was actually a sign that relations with Russia are, are, are very good and they're going to stay very good, which is that um, the ambassador to Russia was recently appointed foreign minister. So uh, I, I think Maduro knows a thing or two about international diplomacy, having been foreign minister himself in the past, as you know. There's an article in Orinoco Tribune. Who is Guaido's cousin who proposed to assassinate Maduro in meeting with Trump? And they talk about Juan Victor Salceda Marquez. He's Juan Guaido's cousin. And according to uh, Mark Esper's recent book, he suggested to Trump a plan to kidnap and assassinate President Nicholas, Nicholas Maduro. Your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I mean, the cousin is not the main story. I mean, all, all of these high-ranking opposition leaders, they all have rich cousins in, in the U.S. But the, the revelations in Esper's book are the ones that perhaps deserve a little bit of attention. And I mean, it's for once, uh, for one, I think we should not fall into the trap of saying, oh, Trump was really crazy. You know, only Trump could imagine some, something crazy like a, a coup or, or killing a, a foreign president, which is kind of what people who jump ship from the administration are trying to do to kind of reposition themselves as the the same voices in a in a in, in a very crazy administration. But the the one the, the thing that, that struck me the most in, in Esper's revelation was just how little they thought of Guaido and how ridiculous Guaido came out of the meeting because I think Esper said that Guaido was willing to fight to the last American. So he was very happy with a coup and an, and an invasion, but he was very honest that he had no ability whatsoever to make it happen. He had no popular support, no military force. So the only way to make it happen was if the, the U.S. was willing to do to do everything. And in fact, we saw just three months after this meeting, which was in February 2020, how the, the Guaido plan, the mercenary invasion known as Operation Gideon or, or known in, in folklore as the Bay of Piglets, was a, a huge failure. Along with the Chevron oil story that your paper reported on, Orinoco Tribune has a piece, Iran and Venezuela continue to circumvent Washington's oil sanctions. Venezuelan and Iranian oil tankers are carrying out ship-to-ship transfers in the open sea to circumvent the crushing U.S. sanctions on both countries. So how do we square the ongoing uh, transfer of oil with the conversations that Chevron is trying to embark upon? Yeah, I think these are parallel efforts. I mean, on one hand, any lifting of sanctions would allow Venezuela to to ramp up its production. And of course, with more oil income, it can address the, the economic crisis. But at the same time, under these very heavy sanctions, there has been an effort to, to circumvent them. And we also had a couple of stories about cooperation in, in the energy sector with Iran. Uh, Iranian oil minister was, was here in the country recently. And there was a contract that was signed to take one of the of the refineries to its, its maximum capacity. So if you remember, uh, one of the, the most heartfelt consequences of, of U.S. sanctions were fuel shortages. And that's in part because Venezuela has this huge refining industry, but that was all built uh, or mostly built with U.S. technology when Venezuela was a very loyal and subordinate ally to, to Washington. So once that changed, the, that te- technology dependence was still in place. And so sanctions hit very hard because then uh, Venezuela had no ability to secure uh, replacement parts or, or, or conduct maintenance. So Iran has been really the main ally in trying to, I don't know, re-engineer these refineries. And the, 
they are slowly ramping up, ramping up capacity. And, and to me, that's very significant because it means that not only is it allowing the country to address fuel shortage, it's also becoming technologically independent of the United States. And that means in turn that in the future it's going to be, uh, there's going to be a, the industry is going to be much more robust against US sanctions and, uh, you know, sanctions are not going to have the same consequences uh, here for the population. Isn't that the inherent danger when Venezuela talks with the talks with Chevron or any American company and they say, OK, we'll come back in and we'll get you going. And let's say, you know, two years from now, three years from now, the American economy and the European economy start to, you know, kind of flatten out a bit and they become OK. Not saying that that's going to happen, but just for theoretical purposes, they do. Then you have these American companies, American businesses, parts, et cetera, and you're right back where you were before because the U.S. is like, hey, you know, we're doing pretty good now again. All right, the sanctions are back on. Yeah, that's perfectly possible. However, there are a, a few safeguards against them. One of them is that uh, Venezuela is al always has a majority stake in, in joint ventures. That was one of the main uh, legislative advances under Chavez and also one of the reasons why the U.S. was always so interested in, in overthrowing them. But I think uh, I think it, it's in a way inevitable that there will be sanctions relief because, I mean, corporations are lobbying for it. And so Venezuela needs to not just ramp its production, but also secure its sovereignty over the resources so that in, in the future it's, it's not, it's not as, as vulnerable as it was right now. We saw that with Iran. I mean, Iran is an interesting parallel. When they were first sanctioned after the revolution in 1979, there was also a huge dip in, in oil production and lots of suffering uh, as expected. But then slowly they managed to, to ramp up the, their capacity again. And once there were new rounds of sanctions, they were much better positioned to, to recover. So that's really the challenge for, for Venezuela moving forward. Of course, sometimes you'll have to strike a deal with the devil, but you shouldn't lose sight that uh, in the long run, the, the devil wants to overthrow you. Do you see as discussions around oil sanctions continue that then there will be subsequent relief on agricultural products and other things? I think it's still very much up in the air. I think this was really a short-term measure from okay. the U.S. to address the, the energy crisis in Europe. We'll have to see how these talks progress between the government and the opposition. Ricardo Vaz, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Great. I look forward to it. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a Global Times editorial entitled, Biden's Trip to Asia, A Provocative Visit Foretold. U.S. President Joe Biden will visit South Korea and Japan from May 20th through the 24th. This will be his first trip to Asia since he took office. Various signs have shown that the trip is a foretold, provocative uh, foretold provocative one targeting China. If the U.S. plays such a role, it will inevitably trigger 
concerns in the Asia-Pacific region. What do we make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. Let's start, if you could put this in a wider strategic context, draw upon your close watching of China as well as Russia and Japan affairs, uh, going back to as far back as 1964 when you were a CIA uh, agency analyst, Ray McGovern. Thanks. Uh, It does help to have a little experience in this. Um, I've been watching relations between, well, what was then the Soviet Union and China since then, since President Kennedy. Now, um, that gives you a little bit of expertise on China as well as Russia. Suffice it to say that they were at loggerheads. Uh, They were mortal enemies uh, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, the U.S. was able to take advantage of that kind of uh, conflict between Russia and China. That is the reverse now. It is uh, the fact that the U.S. cannot take advantage of any conflict between Russia and China because Russia and China are virtually in a military alliance. Uh, They both realize that they are targets for the U.S. They don't have to imagine that. They can read the Pentagon documents on that. And so when I see, for example, that editorial that you just mentioned, and then even more seriously, Uh, The warning by a senior Chinese diplomat uh, just yesterday, he says, look, you know, China is going to take this is a quote. China will take decisive actions to prevent it to protect its sovereignty and security interests. And we will make our words a reality. Hmm. Oh, (laughs) what does that mean? (laughs) Means you're about to get your behinds whooped. That's what that means. Yeah, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you see, these uh, uh, ivy-mantled experts that we have advising Biden don't realize that. You know, back in the day, and I was talking to um, Chaz Freeman this morning about this. Chaz, of course, is the quintessential expert on China, having accompanied Nixon and Kissinger to, to China for the first summer there. And we know the result of that. So I was asking him, you know, what about this? You know, what about this warning? We used to, when the Chinese were powerless under Mao, when the Chinese would say, we give you your 636th warning not to mess around with our interests. We used to laugh that off. We said, (laughs) this 636th warning, give me a break. What does that mean? You know? And uh, the serious warnings didn't mean anything then. What I'd like to impress on people is they mean a lot now. They mean a lot. And uh, what Chaz told me this morning is a really good reminder. He said there was a very serious warning that needed to be taken seriously way back in the 50s. Okay, now I was around in the 50s. A lot of my best friends, big brothers were killed in Korea, okay? Here's what Chaz reminded me of. He said, you know, Zhou Enlai, the Chinese premier who worked very closely with Mao, 
warned the Americans that if American troops crossed the 38th parallel dividing North from South Korea, China would intervene in the war. Whoa. And what happened? Well, uh, MacArthur's uh, intelligence general laughed. <laughs> okay. You know, one of those serious warnings. Uh, so he laughed at it. Okay. And that was the worst intelligence failure in our history, because even though the Chinese told us they were going to do that, we disregarded it. We laughed at it as though it were one of these other serious warnings. And you know that you know how many thousands of troops we lost in Korea for three, well, for two and a half more years. It was all unnecessary. Now, I want to quote Chaz a little further because he was kind enough to reply also by email. And this is what he said. Ray, as you know, there is a direct parallel with Ukraine. As you know better than most, decades of Russian warnings were ignored. And when the Russians reacted aggressively, those warnings were sort of airbrushed, airbrushed out of our collective memory by the media, making the invasion of Ukraine, quote, unprovoked, end quote, and something of a surprise. Last thing Chaz says, it is indeed foolish to ignore the threatening objections of great powers to the perceived violations of their national interests and national security, end quote. Well, there it is in a nutshell. Uh, not only does China feel threatened by what's going on in the area of the Seventh Fleet, where our Navy wants to double the size of the warships uh, that it's building, where uh, things are not looking really well with China actually getting more influence in places like the Solomon Islands, for God's sake. And here is Biden uh, tooling off to, to that part of the world. Uh, what is he going to do? Uh, is he going to try to get Japan and India, of all places, and Australia, and maybe the Solomon Islands? into some sort of Far Eastern NATO? Well, the Chinese are not gonna allow that kind of NATO to get very far. And this is a, a very serious warning from the from a very, uh, what's his name here? What's uh, uh, Young Tishi, who is one of the highest, uh, the highest diplomats that China has. So I just hope that uh, um, what's his name, the Blinken, yeah, Blinken, Lincoln and Sullivan, that they've grown up a little bit since they told Biden exactly one year ago, ah, the Russians are really afraid of China. China has, um, uh, China is encircling, uh, China is threatening, uh, China is squeezing, squeezing Russia. Now, it's not a squeeze, it's a fraternal embrace they both realize that they're, they're targets for the United States. As I say, they don't have to. They don't have to imagine that it's in our national security documents. And you know, now it's two against one. And whereas back in the day, Kissinger and Nixon were very adept. You know, it's the only thing I <laughs> say good about Kissinger. And actually, we helped them. Uh, because there was great doubt as to whether the Chinese and the Russians could ever be enemies because they're both communists, right? Well, we were able to prove 
that they were indeed enemies and they were shooting against the uh, shooting across the border at each other for god's sake nixon and kissinger took advantage of that and some of the fruits of that not many people realize were the first really significant strategic arms agreements between us and russia because the russians were afraid that china would steal a march in relationships with the united states that is completely reversed now this what used to be an equilateral triangle russia china and the united states uh, if you remember geometry it, it's now an isosceles triangle with long ends china and russia and we get the short end of the stick short end of the isosceles triangle this is big most people have no idea that this is the case Right. Let me ask you this. What we keep hearing is the, the Chinese are watching the Ukrainians and that they've learned from that. What do you think the Chinese have learned from the Ukraine crisis? Well, as you may recall, uh, I'm on record as, as saying that the Chinese knew about it beforehand. I hasten to add uh, Chinese specialists like Chas Freeman disagree. Uh, their position is that China would never have approved a violation of their cardinal principle, non-interference in the affairs of other countries. They would never have approved that. Well, okay, uh, I don't know who's right about that. All I do know is that after Putin did what he did, he secured complete Chinese support for what he did. In other words, my reasoning is that, uh, yeah, the Chinese are really staunch defenders of the principles of Westphalia, this Westphalian treaty going back to 1648, where you don't interfere, you don't invade other countries. But they made, well, well they, gave a, they gave Putin a waiver on that, okay? And now, instead of saying arguments from Westphalia, they are saying, quote, we judge each strategic situation on its own merits and we make our decisions accordingly. That is a major change. Who did they say that to? Well, would you believe President President Biden? Would you believe the head of the EU? Would you would you believe the head of NATO? They said the same thing, the same formula, which, if I'm informed correctly, is new, and which means, look, you guys pick a, a fight with both Russia and China, you're in big trouble because uh, Russia is as uh, Chinese say, we understand Russia's strategic inter interests and they were being interfered with and they were being threatened by NATO. Okay. And so we understand and we, we will support Russia and they have supported Russia. So all, all I'm saying here is that this is crystal clear to anybody who's been around for a while, uh, but the people advising Biden have not been for, around very long. And they don't seem to get it through their thick ivy mantle heads that this is dangerous. And if Biden goes goes off the deep end in Asia just a couple of days from now, the Chinese going to react. Now, I'm not saying they're going to attack and invade and, and occupy Taiwan right away, but they're going to do the kinds of things that should worry any strategic planner in the United States. And I would hope that there were some, at least among the military, that would fear a two-front war, which is what it might amount to in the near future. Then, Ray, with Biden going to Japan and with the bluster and the jingoistic language that he is, I, I, this to me is an interesting turn of events from Trump, 
who I thought when he went to the region was trying to bring stability with his meetings with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Now, of course, we know that didn't work out, but I thought that was at least his, his, his intent. Yeah, you know, Trump is a very complicated fellow, but every now and then uh, he seemed to have his head screwed on, right? And this is one instance where working stuff out with North Korea, it worked for a little while. It worked. Uh, the, the North Koreans didn't explode any of these or fire any of these missiles or make any nuclear explosions for a long time, not a long time, for months. And then the Mickey Mat, the military, industrial, congressional intelligence, media, academia, think tank complex weighed in. And of course, Trump was uh, emasculated by them and by the security apparatus that goes with it. So, yeah, he had a fairly good idea on that. And not, well, uh, these fellows don't seem to ever have a fairly good idea. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that insight and that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks. Thank you, Ray. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. <laughs>